Chick-fil-A created one of the most iconic advertising campaigns of all time. Eat more chicken. Back when marketing meant nothing more than glorified couponing, Steve Robinson, former chief marketing officer for Chick-fil-A, found a meaning behind the messaging and drove fast food marketing to new heights. The ingredients that he added would be the difference between simply finger licking good and visionary. First layer, be very clear on why you're in business. What's your purpose? Most organizations don't have clarity around why they exist. And if they do have something, it's not as practical as, as it probably needs to be. I'm Mike Keating. Welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion dollar impact in the world. Obviously, I'm excited to conquer the peaks of Steve's life. But first, I thought it might be useful to get to know a little of Steve's backstory in his life before Chick-fil-A. I grew up in South Alabama. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur. He, he ran a hybrid seed corn business. And then later, a, man, a small manufacturing business. And one of the key things I learned uh, from him besides just the whole principle of hard work, was if you don't sell something, nothing happens. And I used to travel with him when he was trying to sell seed corn or see his, uh, his tools that he was building, and it was rough. Uh, and I became fascinated with the whole industry of sales and brand management was starting to grow. This is in the late 60s, early 70s. So I got the marketing bug, um, kind of looking at the dark side of what happens when you don't do that well. Um, the entrepreneur spirit of growing up in his home was awesome. He was a, a great influence on my life, but because of the sales and marketing side of his business, he, he struggled. So um, I went to undergrad at Auburn, majored in marketing, met my sweet wife there on a blind date. Yeah, and uh, we married four days after we graduated. And we've just celebrated 51 years. And she, and Diana's still my, she's still my best friend. Um, as I was finishing my senior year at Auburn, I went to my dean, who was just a terrific guy, George Horton. And I told him, I said, you know, I really don't feel like I want to go into the marketplace as a salesman. Most, and that was most of what I was seeing in the way of job opportunities. I really have an interest in this whole industry of brand management, communication. If I was going to go to grad school, what, what would you recommend? And George recommended three schools immediately, uh, Stanford, Columbia, and Northwestern. And the short of the story is I chose Northwestern, Medill School of Journalism and Advertising. He helped me get in. Um, the class was actually closed and he reached out, he reached out to the dean there and got me an interview and praise God I, I was accepted. 
So uh, Diane and I loaded up the U-Haul and went to Evanston, Illinois and finished there in 1973. First job was with a Texas Instrument. They had started up a consumer marketing group because they were into the new industry of handheld calculators, scientific calculators. And I was in a group charged with marketing these handheld units to high-end scientific clients, engineers, mathematicians, uh, calculus teachers, people like that. And had an experience that I didn't get at Northwestern in this whole field of direct response. But I was there about a year and I'm starting to realize this, this is still an engineering company. Um, I won't give you all the reasons, but there wasn't much of a marketing mindset in the business. It was very transaction-oriented, price-focused, not brand-focused. And the phone rings one evening, and it's the director of marketing for Flags Over Georgia, who is a brother of a classmate of mine at Northwestern. Uh, his name was Bob Howell. Uh, the short of this story is, he said, I've got an opening out here. Would you come interview? Uh, I've, heard, I've heard about you from, from my brother, Dan. I said, yes. I spent an entire Saturday with him, and he offered me the job that night. This is great. Steve is climbing the marketing ladder at breakneck speed. And just when it seems like things can't get any better, Steve meets a man who will help define his legacy. So I'm, sit I'm sitting in my office at Six Flags in the summer of 1980. <clears throat> it's Jimmy Collins. Jimmy's the chief operating officer for Chick-fil-A. Now, at that point, Chick-fil-A had about 120 stores. They were all in malls, mostly in the seventh southeastern states, which dovetailed with the footprint of Six Flags. And that's why I'd actually met him in, in 1978, pitching him on building a restaurant at the park to build their awareness and trial. The short of that story is it didn't work out. They didn't want to do it. So now it's August of 80, and he's calling me. He says, hey, we, we don't have a marketing department. Your name keeps coming up. I wanted to know if you might have an interest in talking to us. Now, Mike, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I know you didn't have a marketing department or you would have done that deal with me back in 1978. <laughs> but regardless, I didn't say that. Um, and I, you know, here I, I've got a job I love. And uh, I said, Jimmy, I'm honored you called. And I'm thinking, you know what? two or three days, I, I grew a lot of respect for them. I, I'd had enough time with them. I got a pretty good idea who they were. So I'm thinking, okay, I interviewed with Six Flags for a day. What's two or three days here? If nothing else, I'll learn something. So in August of 80, I started interviewing. All right, I'm going to short circuit the story and take you to early December. I'm still interviewing. And I'm doing it, I'm doing it stealth. 
Well, that's the reason I'm telling you this story in pretty good detail, because it really captures part of the core of what makes Chick-fil-A special. Uh, the way they were treating me was really no different than any prospective Chick-fil-A operator or staff member. So it's early December. I'm sitting in Troy Kathy's office now, who, who was the founder and, and CEO. And I, I look at Truett and I said, Truett, this is starting to get a little complicated. I'm, I'm doing this stealth. I like the job I have, but I'm very impressed with your company, your team. Uh, I think I could help you. And I, I really feel alignment with your, with your values. What are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And am I the guy? Well, Mike, there's this long pause, and I'm thinking, okay, this is this is over. <laughs> he says, I have absolutely no idea. Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. But, Steve, if we invite you to come here, it's because we know we can trust you, that we can have fun together. Because if we do invite you, it's because we don't think you're going to go anywhere else. This is it. Um, the most important decision we make here is who we invite into the organization. I said, okay, when do you think you might make that decision? He says, I don't know. I'll talk to Jimmy and let you know. Well, they invited me two weeks later. Um, so I went to work for him in January of 1981. And he was right. They didn't have a marketing department. Truett had no idea what that meant. And I had an unbelievable clean slate. There was no, st I didn't hire any staff. I didn't inherit any staff, I mean. Uh, there was no plan. There was no budget. <laughs> and it was, it was an amazing experience. And as I share in my book, uh, it was a rapid learning curve. Started out doing a lot of research, didn't hire a lot of people, hired an assistant and one field guy to work with me who had worked with me at Six Flags, David Sayers. And two years into it, made a major mistake in the business with a national campaign that went over budget by $2 million. Because basically, even though I had, I'd, add, I'd added aggressiveness to the campaign, better media mix to the campaign, it was still like every other fast food campaign. It was couponing. And it overperformed. And I thought the accountants were going to salt my yard. Um, I went to Jimmy four or five days into it because I knew we had a problem. And I said, Jimmy, I apologize. I was too aggressive. I didn't know enough. I shouldn't have been that aggressive. And he looked at me and said, well, don't worry about it. I approved it. I've told Truett I was part of the decision. And we've just invested $2 million in your education, and you're never going to make that mistake again. And uh, he was more prophetic than he knew. Uh, because it dramatically shaped 
first of all, how I understood their culture. Um, they, even with the mistake, they still trusted me. And um, we, we, learned that, we learned from that experience that if we want Chick-fil-A to be really different, we're not going to market it like everybody else. We're not going to feature price. We're not going to run deals. We're going to get out of the couponing business. We're going to figure out a way to market the business so people are willing to pay full price. And in the fast food arena, that's an unheard paradigm. Quite frankly, it still is. It's amazing. So if you see any deals or discounts or couponing from Chick-fil-A, it's some operator who's out of bounds. How amazing is that? Steve just made a $2 million mistake early in his Chick-fil-A career, and it simply shrugged off as part of his ongoing education. This is the sort of positive mental attitude that fuels every entrepreneur I speak with, and this is the thinking that lets visionaries take risks. But let's take a step back for a second. How did Steve start out at Chick-fil-A? Well, where I started, I, I had a really good background at Six Flags in uh, research that, that fueled strategic planning. So I started along with David, first of all, just going out and visiting with dozens and dozens of the Chick-fil-A operators, trying to understand, okay, what's, what's your business really about? How do you traditionally try to build your sales? And they were doing all the things that were pretty routine for the fast food business. Chasing transactions. Okay, so we listened to them, but they had no, virtually no resources. They, they were making it up. So there was no brand continuity. Secondly, we started doing customer research. We, we interviewed customers from the mall environment heavy users, light users, non-users. Uh, why do you eat in the mall? When do you eat in the mall? Favorite places, etc. And what we learned was that Chick-fil-A was seen as a treat in the mall shopping experience. Um, more times than not, people were using a coupon because they were so readily available. Um, and there really was no food true competitor in the mall environment. There was on the street, but not in the mall environment. So Mike, what that led to in the early stages of the marketing strategy and the planning was, all right, how do we equip the operators to market the business without deals, discounts, couponing? We focused on how do we sample the product in the stores, in the mall environment, and other retailer locations? How do we partner with other retailers? How do we buy in-mall media? Because the mall was the real primary medium. Spending money on media outside of the, of the mall was wasteful. Um, how do we tell the story of this original chicken sandwich and why it's so different, unique? tastes so good. 
And we, we basically built a marketing strategy around what we call inside out. We literally started with a menu board and worked our way out, counter, lease line, mall common area, mall tenants, and focused on that environment and built marketing support tools for the operators where they drove the marketing they chose how to market the store they chose how much to spend and our job was to resource them rather than taking money from them in an accrual and running everything out of atlanta now when i joined them that's what they were doing they were taking an accrual and that's part of what fueled that promotion i ran that busted the budget so part of those learnings from that event was we're going to empower the operators to market the business rather than trying to do it out of Atlanta because Truett had created this this operator model of leadership in the restaurants without getting all the details where operators were getting half the net profits from their stores they were highly motivated to build their sales take care of every customer attract great team members and keep them so why not let them own the weight as well as the, the the satisfaction of building their own sales and that is still the core philosophy of the business today yes you see media from chick-fil-a but it is a fraction of what is spent on marketing it's probably less than 15 percent uh the majority of money spent on marketing by chick-fil-a is still spent by the operator or the local market operator team. Um, so that became a fundamental point of difference in Chick-fil-A, beyond just culture, but how they marketed the business from the operator out. And that is still the model. Steve had put his plan in place. He saw an opportunity where others saw him making waves. It's such a powerful play. Hire the best people, empower and incentivize them, and then let them do what they do best. I can't agree more with that. But even in the early stages of brand building, did Steve have an inkling as to the impact he was creating? No, I, I will tell you. In fact, in my last interview, that last interview with Truett, um, he had a Bible verse on his desk, Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be more valued than silver and gold. And I was walking out of the office. I said, Truett, what's the significance of that verse? He says, it's my life verse. He said, I memorized it when I was in the third grade. And my goal is to build a great reputation and everything and everyone associated with Chick-fil-A, I want us to have a great reputation. I said, well, you just defined what a great brand is. And it was kind of funny. He says, what's a brand? <laughs> and I said, well, I think you have the foundation of building a great brand because you're focused on what's really important reputation you're not in a hurry you have no intentions of selling the business you're focused on quality and you're not going to outgrow your infrastructure 
And um, so I went into it with, with a sense, if Six Flights can build a great brand and they're publicly owned, Truett has this incredible opportunity to do the same. Now, Mike, I talked about brand for decades at Chick-fil-A and most people thought, what, what babble is he talking about? Because when most people hear the word brand, they think it's just part of marketing. The reality is a great brand is focused on every customer encounter, every touch point. So in the case of Chick-fil-A, it means literally the food, the service interaction, the bathroom, the marketing, everything the people. And uh, so the whole concept of designing uh, the experience, the food, the menu, the hospitality model, the marketing messaging, so that it's all designed to build the same kind of brand reputation, which evolved. I mean, we spelled out what we wanted to be was a foreign concept. And I honestly think in most organizations today, consumer-facing organizations today, it's still either a foreign concept or it's an uphill battle. Uh, The reason it's an uphill battle is particularly in a publicly owned business, it's hard to build the cultural foundation where people are focused on long-term development of a brand versus short-term results. You have the issue of leadership turning over all the time at the top, CEOs, CMOs. So every time that happens, they they want to put their fingerprint on what the purpose and the vision of the business is. People are knee-jerk. Well, what are we trying to be this year? I never had to struggle with that at Chick-fil-A. There was no confusion about what Short wanted to be. He wanted to have a great reputation. He didn't use marketing lingo like I did, but he, he wanted, in essence, he wanted a brand people could trust. Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. Things are going great at Chick-fil-A. The brand is coming along nicely, but that doesn't mean there weren't issues standing in the way of ultimate success. Well, first of all, we had to get through the hurdle of the operators understanding that we were going to get serious about every guest experience was going to be the same. Food's going to be the same. The quality standards in in which it's served is going to be the same. All the messaging is going to be the same. The look, sound, smell of messaging. They've kind of been doing their own thing. 
that's 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 going to stop. So you had the whole transition of operators being trained and developed to understand we are all part of one family here. And if we build the reputation or the brand of Chick-fil-A properly, you're actually going to be more successful if you keep trying to do your own thing. But they they were independent contractors, and this spirit of individual entrepreneurism was deep. And so it was hard. It took time to, to reframe uh, their mindset around how we're going to help them grow their business. And it's going to be around a consistent brand promise and experience and not what the deal is of the week. So that was the first challenge is the long-term transition with the operator family. And, and quite frankly, it took 20 years. Um, the second big challenge was, which related to that, was when we went out on the street with stores, our operational consistency was, wasn't. <laughs> And we had to we had to figure out how do we help the operators consistently deliver the same food guest experience. Um, we had enough research and data to know that there was way too much variance: time, temperature, speed of service, accuracy of the order, all over the board. Uh, yeah, some of them our own. You know, we all visited our own stores unannounced, and we had guest experiences. Some of them were great, and some of them weren't. And you had to be willing to step back as leader and say, okay, is this the fault of the operator, or is it our fault? And what we discovered, and quite frankly, we discovered it by studying companies like Lexus, who had a, an entire infrastructure built around zero defects, we realized it was our fault because our specs weren't tight enough, not only for the restaurant, but for suppliers. Some of our equipment wasn't properly designed to be, deliver consistency. Uh, our training was inadequate. So basically, we went we went all the way back to product specs, and we we resh we reshaped, reengineered everything. This is what a Chick Fil A sandwich is. This is how it's made, right down to the ounces, the temperature, the two pickles, the how long the oil is used, how much butter is on the bun, how it's toasted, how long it's holded, held. I'm sorry, et cetera. That kind of detail on every product. Then you redesign the training to deliver it. Then you put customer measurements in place to see if you're, in fact, consistently doing it. So we had to design a research system for every store to measure guest experience. Um, that was a six or seven year experience. And we went from a, a, a guest variance of up to 20% to down to less than three. That was another major transition in the brand. Uh, and because we realized we could never be a great brand if, if the operational excellence 
was not there. Third major transition. Go ahead. Let's take a minute here. You know, it's amazing to hear Steve say that they looked at the problem and realized it's our fault. Oftentimes, leaders want to project themselves as being stronger, better, more knowledgeable than maybe they really are. But Steve and his team took a different approach. What inspired this? Well, I think Truett set an environment all the way back to his original diner called the Dwarf House, where he wanted every breakfast, steak sandwich, cup of coffee to be exactly the same. He said, you could serve a bad cup of coffee, but as long as you did it all the time, you'll be okay. (laughs) Um, So he had always focused on consistency. And one of the reasons he designed the operator model was to have a, a leader in every restaurant to pay attention to that. But if your specs are too loose, around product coming in the back door or how you season, how much seasoning you put on a filet or how long it's marinated, just little details like that. If if there's too much room for variance, then you're not going to be consistent. So it was our fault. Um, And you got to remember a lot of those systems came all the way back to 1967 when they first started Chick-fil-A in the first mall store. They had been. They had not been carefully examined. I think we were highly motivated by two operators in Kentucky, who, on their own initiative, went to the Lexus manufacturing site in Kentucky, and on their own learned about zero defects. And they put those systems in their restaurants for about a year or so, and they're knocking it out of the park. And we said, okay, <laughs> let's go learn from learn from them uh, and learn further in more detail from, from Lexus, Toyota. And they were very open. They were, we weren't a competitor of theirs. They were very open with how, they, how the systems were designed and how they worked. This is so unique and refreshing. It's certainly some of the most out-of-the-box thinking that I've come across. So what did Lexus teach Chick-fil-A? Well, what we learned was that their their production uh, tolerances were dramatically less than any of the American manufacturers. And they'd figure out how to consistently deliver those much smaller tolerances. The result is automobiles that perform better and last longer. And so we said, why can't we do that in a restaurant environment? So we re-engineered the the procedures for products. We re-engineered some of the equipment, completely redid all the training. Uh, We told the operators, if you're not operating within certain tolerances of performance, uh, your deal is at risk, uh, or you may never be entertained for a a move to a different restaurant. If you're not in the top 20% on these quality measurements, 
you're not a candidate for another opportunity. So uh, we didn't we didn't browbeat performance. We pulled performance using data. So that was about a six or seven year journey. Um, early two thousand, I think. Truett stands. This is another hallmark in the business. Truett stands up in an annual meeting, and he tells the operators. He said, "Listen, when people tell your people thank you, I want you to tell them." My pleasure. He had experienced that at a Ritz-Carlton. He loved the interaction it created with the guest and the staff member in the hotel. He made the point, you, you can't do that and not look people in the eye. You, you almost naturally smile, and it's contagious. Well, the operator's reaction for the first year or two of him making that request was, we don't have time for that warm and fuzzy stuff. We're trying to serve hundreds of customers an hour. So again, I'll abbreviate the story. We decided he's dead serious about it and we think he's onto something. It, it has the ability to take us to the next substantial level as a brand. And actually, Dan Cathy adopted Matthew 5, uh, I think it's verse 41, where Jesus is telling the story about going the extra mile with your Roman uh, soldier. So we labeled it extra mile service. And operational excellence was the first mile. You don't get to extend the second mile of graciousness if you can't deliver the first mile. Okay, so the short of that is we basically did the same thing we did with Lexus. We went out and benchmarked companies that had consistent great hospitality. Ritz-Carlton, Nordstrom's, um, Danny Meyer restaurants in New York, Apple Retail Genius Bar, um, Disney. And we didn't just visit their sites, we visited their management. How do you do it? How, how do you inculcate, train, measure consistent hospitality behavior? I unpacked some of it in my book, so I won't bore you with the details, but it, it took seven years to benchmark those kind of organizations, research behaviors that customers appreciated, but didn't interact with or interrupt their experience or slow down service because operators were paranoid about doing that. And they had every right to be. How do you measure it? We expect two pickles on our sandwich. How do we, how do we measure my pleasure every time or flowers on the table or refreshing drinks or carrying large orders, etc.? So we had to design research to measure that. And just like we do with operational excellence, those scores impacted the operator's ability to maybe move to another opportunity. Yeah, so it's still a pull strategy. When we rolled that out, second mile service, um, our same store sales literally doubled. We didn't roll out a new product. We didn't roll out a new ad campaign. But when we rolled out second mile service and every store was doing it, 
what we learned very quickly was we were creating an army of Chick-fil-A fans who were marketing the business for us. And our, our benchmark study, which we did every year across the country, which traditionally, why do you visit Chick-fil-A? Give us the top 10 reasons you visit this store. It was always food stuff in the top five or six. Well, within two years of rolling out second mile service, food was in the bottom half and interrelational stuff with team members on the top half. How people how people were how people were treated. There is was and there is Mike a hunger for respect, dignity, honoring me by just simply acknowledging that I'm there. Eye contact, a smile, my pleasure, uh, rather than no problem, and. Um, People just rewarded us for it, and they still are. And Chick-fil-A has become an icon for a brand that stands for hospitality and respect. So kudos to Truett for challenging us, our team for developing, going out and figuring out how to do it, and operators becoming amazingly effective at training over 200,000 team members on how to do it every day. Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. What I really love here is that we're talking about marketing, and yet we haven't talked at all about traditional marketing strategy. It's this kind of thinking that separates the average thinker from the visionaries, so with all of this new innovative positioning, how does that relate to the campaign that helped blow the barn doors open for Chick-fil-A? The Cow campaign came in 1996. In fact, the first billboard, which is behind me, ran in Atlanta in 1996. And it was a huge hit. Well, we didn't spend that much money on media, and the cow campaign was nothing more than designed to be a, an umbrella to support what operators doing locally. And specifically, the campaign was designed to tell people, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We like having fun. We want you to have fun. You come to Chick-fil-A, you're going to have fun, and we're not going to beat you over the head about what we're selling this week and what it costs. And um, I, w I got to work on that campaign with the Richards Group for 22 years. They kept it fresh, relevant, funny. 
But it didn't drive the business. It supported the business. Um, it created an environment in the marketplace where Chick-fil-A was different because the message was unique. But then when people showed up at a restaurant, the experience was different too. Um, so that that's how that's how all these pieces of the touch points create a great brand. In fact, my three years before I retired, we changed the entire strategic planning format of, of the business where the entire business uh, developed strategic plans around customer touch points. And we had teams that owned specific in initiatives around that. I unpacked, I actually show the template in my book. And it helped take us to the next level where everybody understood if you're not helping to build the brand, whether it's packaging, store technology, messaging, store design, menu design, menu design, etc. If you're not focused first on the customer, and you say, well, how'd you do that? Well, we had a marketing person on every initiative team whose responsibility was to bring the voice of the customer to that team. So even, for example, development of, a, of an app, there was a marketing person on that team who was making sure we were doing customer voice, voice of the customer research to make sure that app was going to be designed to reflect the brand the way we wanted it to be delivered. Same with store design, same with packaging. So as you might imagine, the voice of the customer research group at Chick-fil-A is a pretty large group because they're servicing the entire organization, not just marketing. This is so insightful, especially for those of us in touch with marketing initiatives. But now I wanted to get to the campaign that changed the game, also known as the Eat More Chicken campaign. I had to know, how did that come about? Well, it wasn't until the mid-90s that we had enough stores on the street that even had we even had to consider traditional media. And when we got to that point, we decided, all right, we don't have a lot of money. We're not going to outspend our competition. If we're going to do this, we have to have great creative. Did an agency search, got it down to three candidates. Uh, we selected the Richards Group out of Dallas. They had a great reputation with great creative around clients like um, Motel 6, Tom Bodette, Fruit of the Loom guys. Um, uh, let me think. The uh, beach, the beach campaign uh, for um, the beer. I'm just <laughs> drawing a blank. Um, and Home Depot. And they won the business based upon their creative commitment where Stan Richards said, you will not see any creative concept that I've not personally approved. I worked with them for 22 years. He lived up to that promise every year. And they realized the most important asset they were delivering for us was great creative. It wasn't how, how to buy the media. We, we narrowed the media down for, for years to nothing but three-dimensional billboards because all we could afford. It wasn't until mid-2000s that we ventured into college football media. 
So um, they started by developing three 3D boards. They brought us concepts for about a year before they brought in this one with two cows painting to eat more chicken. We loved it. We put it up in Atlanta during the 96 Olympics. It was a huge hit. Created a lot of buzz. So we put it up on our top 20 markets for three months. We paid for everything. We told the operators, normally this is your investment, but we're going to put this can- one board in your market. We're going to pay for it for three months. If you don't like it, you can take it down after three months. None of them did. And we went back to Stan after three months, and we said, Stan, we think you got an idea here that's bigger than just one billboard. Would you take three months and work it up? What would it look like as a campaign? Every media platform, in-store, packaging, kids' meal, the whole gamut. They did. We love what they presented, and... We took off on that journey where we'd see new creative every three to four months and just kept churning out cow jokes. Of course, I had to ask Steve, when he first saw the campaign, what went through his mind? I went, I lost, I absolutely left my head off. First of all, it was incredibly funny. Secondly, you're taking a shot at the beef guys without being offensive. And it was so out of the box for fast, fast food, you couldn't ignore it. So I, my, in, intuitively, my reaction was, besides laughing my head off, was this, this is gonna, either going to be a big winner or just be a dud. Big winner. In fact, it, it had only been up in Atlanta for a, a week. And I get a phone call from Truett. And he said, Steve, can you come to my office? Well, he never told me to come to his office. Even when I screwed up, he never he, he never did. I go up there, and this guy is sitting at the corner of his desk. And uh, Truett's got this serious look on his face. And I'll make up the name. He says, uh, Truett, uh, Steve, this is Bill. Bill is the president of the Georgia Cattlemen's Association. And he's very upset about that billboard you put up. Me, I I put up. He wants you to take it down. What what do you think? Well, I knew Troy well enough. He he was a prankster. I, I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, I know Truett raises cattle as a hobby on his farm, but he makes his living selling chicken, and he's hired me to help him sell more of it. I think the cows are going to help us do that, so unless he tells me to take it down, I'm leaving it up. By this time, Truett's got a big smile on his face, and he looked at Bill and he says, I agree with Steve. So I only tell you that because I knew immediately if Truett loved it, he was willing to tell this guy to buzz off (laughs) it must be pretty good and he loved the campaign everywhere he went he went with plush cow toys asking kids what do the cows say no they don't move they say eat more chicken um he was a great campaign advocate 
Um, and anytime I went to him with an idea to kind of take it to the next level, for example, putting it out there in the college football space, totally supported me. Nah. How about the only people we ticked off were teachers because they were accusing of teaching kids how not to spell. And I, w I had a standard letter I write them when they wrote me. I said, well, why don't you just take the Cal Creative and tell the kids, now this is how you don't spell it. Show me how to spell it correctly. The cows can't spell. It's a joke. <laughs> the entire time I was, the, the remainder of my career there, absolutely. Iconic campaigns are very rare. It's an asset. It's an asset of the brand, and I wouldn't go to walk away from it. Whenever you're growing an iconic brand, such as Steve was, there are always stressors. There's always pressure. So I quizzed Steve on the challenges that he faced during this time. Well, there there are many, and not just for me, but for the business in general. Um, Chick-fil-A started in 1967. They didn't hit their first billion dollars in sales until 2001. I left in 2016, and the previous year, we'd already reached seven billion. And last year, they hit almost 20 billion. So the first challenge is, is how do you manage that kind of growth in terms of all the infrastructure issues, supply chain, um, the, the marketing decisions that are being made by local market teams, operator teams, how do you support them so they can they continue to make the right kind of choices? How do you continue to improve the training that not only operators are getting, but now Every store has a marketing director of their own. How do we train them, help them understand what we're trying to do with the brand, the business, the marketing philosophy, what's in bounds, what's out of bounds, etc. So now you're training literally thousands of people every year on brand strategy and, and marketing execution. This led me to ask Steve if he ever felt any level of stress in the role. No. No, I didn't. I, I'm really, I'm telling you, I never felt any stress. I was having a ball. Uh, I had great, I had great leaders around me on my team. The independent contractor operators are incredibly competent. Their capacity to absorb, change, innovation, adapt, build their teams, unbelievable. I mean, the average operator today has seven or eight full-time paid leaders in their business and probably 120 to 150 hourly employees. I mean, they're running a major enterprise. Um, and if they can't do it and do it well, they won't, they won't last. So the system naturally, I guess you would say thins out the ones that where the business outgrows them. Now it's not many, it's not many. So the operator network is a huge asset in terms of introducing innovative ideas and then eventually rolling them out, their ability to execute them. 
but I had a leadership team around me that, that they could step up to any challenge. Uh, I don't care if it was menu innovation, technology innovation, marketing innovation. It didn't matter. And many of those people are still there. And um, they they have grown up in the culture. They understand what's important. They know what the purpose of the business, to glorify God and have a positive influence on others. They know what the brand promise is. And so they're, they haven't wavered from the underpinning foundations of the culture, all of which, of course, is supported by a family who still owns the business, who's now in the third generation of leaders. Um, a huge asset to be privately owned and a family who has no desire to sell the business, uh, who loves the business and is committed to stay in it. Yeah. With this podcast, we like to uncover the lessons that we can take away from our guests' experience. As such, I asked Steve what he would say to young, aspiring leaders who want to experience a similar journey with a similar level of impact. Oh, Mike. Um, <laughs> well, there I do some consulting, and my consulting tends to be a rather elongated process. Because the answer to your question is not an easy, simple answer. Um, I kind of build that answer in layers. First layer, be very clear on why you're in business. What's your purpose? Um, I didn't understand that when I joined Chick-fil-A. It didn't take me long to figure it out. I was there when we actually wrote the corporate purpose statement. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all those entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And that is more than a sentence. It, if it, 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 uh, how do I want to say it? Um, it impacts every decision, every investment, every initiative. If every, every initiative, investment, talent choice, can't further that mission, you shouldn't be doing it. So it's a very, it's not only an aspirational statement, it's very practical. And most organizations don't have clarity around why they exist. And if they do have something, it's not as practical as, as it probably needs to be. Chick-fil-A's was. Not a word has changed since, since we wrote it in 1982. So that's first, is understand why you exist leaders got to walk the talk, make decisions that reflect it, etc. Number two is you have to be clear around why your brand, what's your brand promise? And what I mean by that is what, what can people expect from you that's unique, that's different? Uh, for Chick-fil-A, it was a, an experience that transcended the product or transaction we we summarize it with four words, four, four words, where good meets gracious. Food's good, people are good, the environment's good, the bathroom's good, everything about it's good. We actually meet you, we connect with you, eye contact. We respect the fact that you're standing there, you're sitting there. We're good meets, so we've met you. We're good meets gracious. There's genuine hospitality and caring in every interaction. Um, 
when the entire organization then designs guest experiences around that brand promise, you continue to grow the brand value. So first is clarity and why you this. Secondly, what kind of, what's your brand promise that's unique in the marketplace? And related to that, of course, is you got to design all your systems, deliver it, and you got to measure whether you're actually doing it. Then you design strategic systems to deliver it, to deliver that brain promise. Now that's where you get into hundreds and thousands of initiatives and planning decisions, people decisions, investment decisions. But if those first two things are clear, it makes everything in that third bucket easier. It makes it easier to figure out what you're not going to do, what's going to deliver the greatest value to the customer, the greatest value to the brand promise, the greatest value to the why we exist. So that's my answer in principle. Um, but it does actually all go back to Truett's comment to me, the most important decision we make here is who we invite into the organization. If you're clear around purpose and clear around brand promise, it must impact who you invite in the, into the organization. Because if, if you have alignment there, then it allows you to empower people throughout the organization rather than expecting decisions to go vertical. And most organizations are all built around the guy above them or the girl above them making decisions rather than you make the decision that's best for the brain promise in the context of our purpose. If you have a question, come ask me. But if there's alignment on those two things, you're empowered to make that decision. Or at the very least, develop a strategic initiative to go into the plan that reflects your idea. Hire the best and let them do what they're great at. That's something that most of us in leadership can agree with. Now, as we start to wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask Steve to look back at his journey and consider what moments that he is most proud of. Oh, I think um, creating an environment where people, starting with Truett, had a platform for personal ministry. Um, Truett gave all of us the opportunity to help him build a business that enabled all of us individually to serve other people uh, because of the power of the Chick-fil-A name, the influence of the Chick-fil-A name. So any staff member, any Chick-fil-A operator has this much larger canopy of influence and ministry because of the Chick-fil-A brand. If they were a business that was still just ch chasing transactions through deals, they wouldn't have that. And so I, I my greatest satisfaction was Chick-fil-A became an extension of my own personal values. Uh, it expanded dines on my platform for influence and ministry and things we cared about. But that is happening in the life of everyone's associated with Chick-fil-A. So it's not, it's not about the size of the business. Uh, it's about the platform the brand gives everybody in the business.
Steve is most certainly a visionary. He revolutionized marketing in the fast food industry and beyond with a drive and determination to enhance the customer experience and to make it a part of the marketing journey. Steve changed the way we see fast food and the role it plays in our lives. Surely that's the true value in making a billion dollar impact. I appreciate the invitation. By the way, my book is still my book is still on sale on Amazon. Hey, thanks for listening and keep following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to recommend us to a friend, we'd like that too.